Welcome to Fully Yours, a podcast about food, the sacred, and ordinary moments of extraordinary belonging. Hey, this is Christy. And this is Chloe. We are Fully Yours, a podcast about food, the sacred, and ordinary moments of extraordinary belonging. We are two friends who studied theology together in graduate school. Christy is recording live from the East Coast, where she grew up reading cookbooks before bed. Christy loves, mm, adores cheese, and likes to make someone's day with food. And Chloe is recording live from the West Coast, where she grew up plucking cherry tomatoes from her dad's garden. She fell in love with chocolate ginger banana bread in college. Chloe, I need that recipe. You got it. (laughs) And wants to spend her life working alongside communities to explore ways of eating that nourish our bodies, cultures, and relationships. Every other episode, we have a conversation about what the two of us are reading, thinking, and of course, eating. We welcome you to this cross-country table. Please have a seat and savor with us as we explore these topics. I love it. Yes. Uh, Chloe and I have been doing lots of reading over the past several years, um, but one author that we'd like to lift up today is Michael Pollan. Um, I fell in love with Michael Pollan's writing back, I think it was back in 2010. Um, I was studying abroad in London and was just wandering through this uh, giant, it was almost like a flea market slash uh, bookstore slash food market. It was mm. really, really cool um, in London and stumbled upon the omnivore's dilemma, the UK version. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I, I picked up the book and I thought it looked interesting. And from then on out, I fell in love with his writing style and everything that, um, that he had to say. It was very eye opening and it was a way of exploring food systems that I had never explored before. Um, so Chloe and I found um, some articles about him and, and some of the things that he's written, as well as a podcast with Oprah. And the reason why we decided to talk about Michael Pollan today was that actually a friend of the podcast, Bailey Bronner, um, sent us an email letting us know about one of his Uh, recent interviews with Oprah on her really popular podcast, Super Soul Conversations. Um, It just was was in the summer of 2018. Um, And the two of them uh, sit down and have this really wonderful conversation about um, food and our food system, but also kind of start to speak to the spiritual terms or, or really the, the meaning making behind food and, um, and community. So we wanted to, to just sit with that a little bit and talk more about it. Yeah, I think one of the, the phrases that stuck out to me um, towards the beginning of, of that conversation was, Michael Pollan said, three times a day, we have an opportunity to express our values. And that's really huge. Um, it's really important for, for us to recognize where our food comes from. And both Michael and Oprah um, highlight that in their conversation. Just because we can eat so unconsciously and without thinking and when we put value towards our, our food and where it comes from, we automatically have more meaning attached to it. 
So it's it's a personal decision, but it also becomes a communal decision and a global decision in, in terms of what we're eating. Yeah, and I, I definitely appreciate that shift, um, that that invitation, I guess, to, to think really broadly about this. Um, I think in that statement, sort of that choice, um, certainly for some of us, we do have more of a degree of choice. Um, for some of us, we, we get to have three meals a day. Um, for some of us, we get to choose what we're eating, how we're using our money, what sort of money we have available to us, what foods we have available to us. Um, and I think it's really important to think about too, like how are our communal and global systems affecting that very degree of choice. And for some people, they, you know, we don't get to eat three times a day or, um, the foods that are available, we don't really get to choose, um, or express our values through our foods, um, because we have very limited options. So uh, keeping all of that in mind, um, there is, there is so much room for what sort of statement we're making, certainly on the personal level, but also on the communal and global level of who has access to what, um, what we value. And yeah, I think it's, um, you know, we, we looked back at one of Michael Pollan's articles in the New York times and it's from 2009. It was when, um, Obamacare was really, uh, present on the media, um, as that was unrolling. And, and Michael Pollan comments on it about um, how Obamacare was directly related with with food and with health insurance, and he spent some time kind of painting the the landscape of food systems in our country. Um, what did, what stood out to you, uh, Christy, about that picture? Yeah, I think one of one of the quotes from that article, uh, Michael says, cheap food is going to be popular as long as the social and environmental costs of food are charged to the future. And you make such a good point, too, because um, for years I had been reading Michael Pollan with very idealistic eyes of like, hey, we can make all these decisions. But but you brought up an incredible point that um, I so often uh, neglect to see. I have been blessed with choices. I've been blessed with the ability to to make healthy choices. But but access to food, I've grown up in a middle class society. Um, and for for many people, cheap food is all that they can afford. Cheap calories is all that they can afford. And um, with the the current government system subsidizing these cheap calories through corn subsidies and, and corn syrup and, and all of this stuff, um, it makes it really hard for those who who are struggling to make ends meet to make healthy choices. Yeah, there's one statement to that that he writes that's pretty haunting. It's uh, he says, to put it more bluntly, the government is putting itself in the uncomfortable position of subsidizing both the costs of treating type 2 diabetes, because that's where a large portion of our um, our healthcare spending is going, mm-hmm. and the consumption of high fructose corn syrup. It's kind of like they're in bed with these two worlds that are directly 
opposing each other or in a really spooky way kind of complementing each other Um, because he then talks about how he says one of the leading quote one of the leading products of the American food industry has become patients for the American healthcare industry Mm. which is really frightening to think about that um, that we've created this system where the commercial interests of sort of large ag complements um producing patients for our healthcare industry Mm. um so it's kind of this question of values like where what are we aiming for as as a a country and then like how can we be a part of making those choices on a personal or uh kind of more micro community level absolutely Chloe, you, we had talked before starting to record this, this particular episode about an article that you read um, just talking about that very thing. It was an article, um, it was in a little uh, magazine produced by one of the local co-ops in, in the city where I live, and um, it was predicting, it was just some some conjectures about what is going to happen to the food environment in the future, especially as we approach or delve more into this change towards climate change. Um, and the author sort of states very clearly, you know, uh, these are just guesses, but their guess was that um, as fossil fuels become way more limited, uh, regional food economies they won't only be trendy, but they'll also be necessary. Um, and that actually you'll see a reemergence of, of regional food, which in some ways is, you know, it'll limit options of what foods are available to eat. Um, but there's also tremendous potential there. If, if we learn how to farm in climate sensitive ways, um, and hopefully also work to, to slow down or, or reverse some of the effects of climate change, um, what might emerge in terms of the foods that we eat and how that might be reshaped um, to sort of these new um, ways that are that are geographically specific. Um, as food is geographically specific, we just, I think right now um, with this sort of global food economy, we, we aren't necessarily as aware of that as we may have been in the past. Yeah, yeah. I think we'll definitely get to the point of recognizing uh, regional importance of particular foods. And I think with that, um, you know, food access will become um, much easier of an issue to to combat, hopefully, is is what I'm hoping. Um, just because when, when you look at farmer's markets and the fact that farmer's markets, at least here in Massachusetts, farmer's markets... Uh, allow the receiving of food stamps, um, SNAP stamps for fresh produce. Um, I think that's, you know, we are seeing positive changes. And and even uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had a conversation with Tess Tomlinson, who is a Boston area gleaner. And so there are many, many organizations that are tackling this food access issue. Um, And I think, you know, even though it's not good to be forced into change, I think sometimes, you know, with the the decline of availability of fossil fuels, maybe maybe this is exactly where we need to be and, and where we need to go to ensure that that everyone does have access to food. Um, yeah, it, it was interesting. Um, 
Pollen talks about how United Healthcare, which is a big um, U.S. insurance uh, company, reached out to MIT and Columbia, um, and they wanted a, a sort of a solution in terms of how to address childhood obesity in the United States. And, uh, and Pollen talks about how MIT and Columbia actually suggested uh, this concept. I don't. I don't think they coined it necessarily, but but talked about a concept of the food shed. So um, he defines that as a diversified regional food economy, um, as being like pivotal for for Americans to recover. Uh, in terms of the obesity epidemic, in terms of how we care for our health, um, and that then affecting our healthcare system. So, yeah, all these really kind of disparate points. You're talking about climate change, you're talking about healthcare and insurance, um, as well as uh, regional foods, and yet they're so interrelated. Absolutely. And I think as we um, as we continue to talk about these things, especially uh, between Chloe and I and between my family and friends, um, one of the things that like really brings it down to the core for me is is the relational aspect of eating and choosing foods. Um, in, in Michael Pollan's podcast with Oprah, he talks about the meal as being communion where we engage with the world and with others. And, and he, he uses cooking as a form of giving. Um, you know, if you've ever been to a funeral, which is unfortunate, but um, if you've ever been to a funeral, you know the first thing that happens after the funeral is you eat, you share a meal with, um, with your loved ones. And um, I think I think that's hugely important. I, I remember last summer, unfortunately, I lost my aunt. And the most memorable meal to date was when we uh, went to the funeral and came back to to her home um, filled with family. And we just ordered like 17 dishes of Chinese food hmm. and just like we ate so much. But it was the best like communion with one another after after such a, a you know, hard time. Um, and so I think sharing meals, especially a common meal with others, it, it's, it's what really brings us together. Hmm. Yeah. And that concept of communion, even that word, um, I think, you know, you can certainly locate it in the Christian tradition. That's a, um, a ritual or, or practice communion or Eucharist, um, which is, practiced in several Christian communities across the board. Um, and it's this idea of, of the breaking of bread, which is a representative um, of Christ within the Christian tradition. Um, but certainly this is also such a, uh, taken from a, in a different context, it's, it's an incredibly cross-cultural concept, this idea mm-hmm. of, of coming together um, in meal. And... I remember once I was taking a class on restorative justice and um, one of my classmates shared how um, in his community where he came from, where restorative justice is still um, sort of integral to the life of the community, common meals as ways of reconciling 
after wrong has been done um, and after going through this process of deciding how to best proceed and how to start to heal some of those wounds um, he described having that communal meal also as being something as really um, integrated into into their way of of going about wrongdoing and healing yeah yeah so christy um going back earlier to sort of that concept of of choice for three meals a day when Mm. when we do have the choice um maybe financially our economic status our racial identity, our gender identity, all of those things coming into play in in terms of that degree of choice. Um, If we are in a position where we have a choice about three meals a day, I think there's another obstacle sometimes that we, um, or or maybe also an opportunity that we encounter and that Paulin talks about too. And that's this thing of time <laughs> and how here we are in this current place in history um, where we have this supposedly exponential amount of free time compared to our ancestors and yet a lot of people report feeling busier or more tired or um, exhausted than before um, at least in the context of um, maybe of our country or um, that's definitely what we can uh speak to in our own experiences um but yeah how does that how how do you encounter that how do you work with that I have a confession to make yeah me too (laughs) (laughs) for for as much as as Chloe and I speak about um the elevation of food in terms of of eating well and going to farmers markets and cooking our own food time can get away from us um and in the past two weeks, I have had very, very, very little time. And I don't think that there was a day in the past two weeks where I did not go through a drive through. Um, yeah. And why is that? Why do you have so little time right now? Yeah, I'm, I'm working full time um, at a winery and mm-hmm. in the food industry, things are chaotic. Things are crazy at work. And at the end of the day, you've been on your feet you've it's just I the last thing that I want to do is stand by a stove and cook which sounds Mm -hmm. so sad because I love cooking but my body just hurts so yesterday I finally broke down I was like I can't do this anymore I feel really really awful um so I went to the grocery store uh I wish that I could have made some of the farmers markets that are always constantly around here in Massachusetts but I had to leave after work and do this and find time. So I'm doing the best that I can. And I think that's that's the best that we can do um, just in general. Oh, yeah. But I picked up some arugula, some, um, some gorgonzola cheese, some walnuts. Uh, I picked up some uh, frozen fruit. And I've been making smoothies for myself for the past couple of days. And and salads um because i just need i need green i need vitamins i need nourishment that i was certainly not getting at (laughs) drive-thrus so um yeah it's it's hard it's really really hard. hard yeah yeah no that's really real i think um I can share in your experience. <laughs> <laughs> Christine and I have both been working food industry jobs this summer and um 
my mine's only a part-time commitment, but um, I've been working the dinner shift. And so I get into work. I have to leave around 4.30 in the afternoon and get home around 11. Um, and while I'm at work, you know, I'm constantly running around, um, often caffeinated late at night, which <laughs> I would not advise. And, um, and also having no time to eat. You know, I get a 10-minute break, um, which is great. But often will my coworkers and I will like grab something from from the counter and I'll choose like something with the most condensed calories and once I pay at the cash register I have about four minutes to eat it and so um it's been a lot of mac and cheese lately and and then I get home and I'm hungry and tired and start to snack and eat a meal and um you know it's just the phase of life I'm in right now but uh, Paulin had a really interesting comment. Um, he said that how our, our busyness has this air of, he uses the word panic about mm. it and how it's actually the panic that dro- drove us from the kitchen, um, mm. is the way he puts it. Um, and you know, there's a lot of good reasons why we don't all have households with a full-time person in the kitchen. Um, historically in western cultures and in other cultures as well that person have been or people have been women um so that's a huge component of it um economically now and academically women have more options beyond the kitchen which is great um so you know that's certainly something we want to keep in the conversation but also like there i think there's maybe been a loss in in the way our, you know, the fact that um, our businesses and companies, they, they kind of have certain expectations about when you're going to mm-hmm. be there and how many hours they're going to be open so that they can have the most, uh, the highest prof- profit possible. Um, so there's a lot of nuances to the conversation, but yeah, kind of that idea of where, where are we no longer um, finding peace in the kitchen and like what's what are we losing through that um and what are like the environmental costs and the costs in our communities um I haven't sat down and had a dinner with my spouse for about two months because of our work schedules and um yeah and just noticing I'm you know using more uh sort of disposable um, plastics and, and things, uh, when I'm eating on the go, um, eating things that maybe don't feel as fulfilling for the needs of my own body. So yeah. How, what do you think maybe are like the opportunities in this situation? Cause this is where we're at culturally. It's where we're at right now. And, um, it's important to work towards changes on the, on the big picture level, but like day to day, have you found some things that have been helpful for you? Um, as you approach this and, and even as you reflect on it spiritually or theologically um, from your lens and your perspective, how are you navigating this, Christy? I think, um, yeah, when, when we can't necessarily alter our schedule, because I know for both Chloe and I, we, um, we just got out of grad school. We know and we recognize that those student loans are coming up. So it's it's really hard for us to. They're here. They're, <laughs> yeah, they're here. Um, yep. <laughs> so it's it's really hard for us to um, 
to enter into a new or different or more healthy reality when it comes to our time. But um, one of the things that that I've done and noticed um, is that um, if I make my own salad dressing, that goes a long way um, mm. for me. <laughs> like I, I really yeah. like eating vegetables, but the salad dressing really makes it. Nice. <laughs> totally. So, uh, I, I really like to experiment with, with different, uh, vinegars, different oils, different bases for the salad dressings. Uh, my mom actually started making salad dressing several years ago and, um, stopped buying bottled stuff. Cause if you look at the back of the bottle, it's really gross. Like who needs gar gum or whatever in their <laughs> salad dressing and all that salt, um, and lots of corn syrup again in salad dressings. We don't need that. Um, and salad dressings are super easy to make. Uh, it's just a basic vinegar or some sort of acid. You need an acid and you need an oil. And that's about it. Um, mm. I recently, I splurged and bought another cookbook uh, <laughs> <laughs> called Salt, Fat, Acid, and yes. Heat by yeah. Sam and Norset. Um, and it's just an incredible cookbook that really has very few recipes in it, but is more talking about the philosophy of balancing salt, fat, acid, and heat within any hmm. particular given recipe. Uh, so she's got tables, she's got graphics, she's got uh, so much in this book. Um, so I, I had to get it because I don't <laughs> use recipes anyway. Um, so it was a perfect cookbook for me. But I, I flipped through and I found different um, different formulas for different uh, salad dressings. And so I made a honey mustard salad dressing yesterday to go with my salad. And wow. it's maybe three to four tablespoons of mustard. I used regular yellow mustard, but I bet grainy mustard would be really good in it too. Um, or Dijon or, you know, experiment, try something new. Uh, so three to four tablespoons of that, um, three to four tablespoons of, I used balsamic vinegar, but you can use really any vinegar. Uh, apple mm. cider vinegar would be good with it. Red wine vinegar would be good with it. A little bit brighter um, than the balsamic. So it's really up to your taste. And then probably about a tablespoon or two of honey, but you could also use um, regular sugar if you wanted or um, uh, agave would also work well in that. Mm. And then uh, a good, fair, healthy amount of oil, olive oil. <laughs> so probably <laughs> five to six tablespoons of the olive oil. And I just put it in the container and shook it up and... That was my salad dressing. It's so easy and it, it feels so good to like take just like a tiny, tiny step towards cooking. Even if I'm just tired and I don't have the energy for it, find recipes that are simple, easy and start with those. And that's going to be way healthier than any bottled, um, bottled dressing that you can find. That sounds delicious. Th uh, growing up, my um, grandparents are French Canadian and salad dressing and the leafy green salad was something that um was like you would never have a dinner table without it for them for yeah. for the home that my mom grew up in and she sort of passed that on to my sister and I and um kind of the the famed dressing recipe that my grandma always goes to it's five three one so five mm -hmm. spoonfuls or portions of olive oil or any any uh oil three of vinegar and then one of like a Dijon mustard 
and salt awesome. and pepper and you're yes. good to go. Yeah, those are dressings. And I love, you always send me like sauce recipes, <laughs> these amazing <laughs> things. And it's so true. Like, why not dress something up, make it fun? It kind of, yeah, it just elevates it. Um, normally brings out flavors that you wouldn't have otherwise. And yeah, are are super affordable. If you, you know, it's a bit of an investment for that bottle of olive oil or Oh yeah, um, or a nice oil mustard. Is so expensive. It really is. Yeah, and it also lasts. Like it'll last That's a while. True. So, um, yeah, comparing that to getting bottles of dressing, I think it would probably come out ahead. Um, so it's a great way to a great starter. Um, something that I've been doing, I've uh, been doing some work trade at a farm this summer, and it's. Awesome. And a lot of community farms offer it. So I'll go for um, a morning each week. And in return, I get a full CSA box Mm -hmm. without pain, um, which is phenomenal. And being in California, the CSA boxes have been like out of this world lately. (laughs) Oh my gosh. My gosh. This last one, I had like a bag of peaches and a cantaloupe and like six heirloom tomatoes and all this stuff. So it's such a treat. And I'm also like crying inside a little bit because towards midweek, I still haven't cooked most of this food or eaten it mm. because I'm not home. So kind of, you know, that's the tug, tug of war with, um, with farmer's markets and fresh produce. Like it's, it can be really challenging if you're not home, but something that I've been having as a staple, it's sort of strange, but I love it. Um, I'll take a slice of bread, uh, multigrain bread. And normally I try to get a fresh loaf because it just, it makes it taste super good. So I'll get one a week at um, the grocery store, but we don't even have a toaster right now. So I'll just have my my plain bread, but I'll put some vegan mayo on it and a couple of thick slices of heirloom tomato for my box. And then I put um, a little apple cider vinegar because the acid helps a lot, salt and pepper and then just like pour whatever seeds I have. So right now I have some pumpkin seeds and sunflower seeds. Um, sometimes I use hemp seed um, and eat it. And it's like an open face sandwich. Girl, yeah. that is so good. And that it's recalls delicious. to memory. Um, last summer, my neighbor and I, we shared a very similar meal. We And, and there's something about the tomato and the mayo like yes, when the juices know. flow together, right? <laughs> yes. So like our neighbor and I picked up uh, a focaccia loaf from the farmer's market, like right down the street from us and a couple of heirloom tomatoes. And we also shared a glass of wine together. So there's that. <laughs> but there you go. It was so good. It was yeah. so good. Yes. Yes. Totally. I've been like wanting to experiment with some hummus on there to get mm. some protein but mm-hmm. I just can't get myself away from it. <laughs> there so is good. something I think it reminds me of BLTs from when I was a kid so yes. something about that combination but yeah that's been it's I think just having some sort of go-to um in mind and it helps it's been nice that that's you know it's been using some seasonal produce and it's it takes about five minutes to prep so that's the meal I'll have before I go to work. And, um, yeah, I think that that can make 
a helpful step in <laughs> in trying to to work through how um yeah how we eat locally how we eat economically um while still having time to prepare something at home yeah yeah it's the, it's the small things like we can't overhaul our entire diet in one day, which is actually what I tried to do yesterday. Um, I had a smoothie <laughs> for breakfast. I had a salad for lunch. And then I was like, <gasps> I'm so hungry. And it's it's amazing how quickly your body will change over two weeks if you eat mm. poorly. Um, and that's what I discovered. Like my stomach expanded. And I'm sure that um, our listeners have, have noticed this too when when you eat like over the holidays, your stomach expands, not just like the girth of your stomach, but like the actual physical size of the organ of your stomach expands. And so your body gets used to eating these types of foods and, and how much you eat over that time frame. And then, you know, generally during the summer, the spring, like you don't eat as much. Um, and so I noticed over the past two weeks, mm. like, wow, I'm getting seconds and I don't normally do that. And yesterday I felt like I needed to have seconds. So it it definitely changes your body very, very quickly and more quickly than I thought that it would. Um, but small steps, small steps is all that we need to take. And um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to close with, um, there's one other uh, observation that Pollen makes with his conversation with Oprah and I really loved it. Um, he said saying grace or whatever, you know, whatever practice that might be, it might just be a moment of recognition of gratitude of, um, yeah, it could be a full, a full range. Um, he says saying grace is the institutionalization of conscious eating. And, um, yeah, I think for me that was just a reminder of how some of the cultural heritage heritage that um, each of us learns from our families, from or maybe from our our friends, from our adopted families, from our cultures, um, things that have been passed on through through human lineage some of it has such like concrete wisdom in it. <laughs> and, um, I think this is true with, with food and how I think humans have, especially during times where food was something, um, I think, um, uh, widespread was something that felt so precious because it was, I mean, you really felt the temperamental nature of, the weather, which a lot of communities and countries in this world still do feel. Um, and with uh, industrial agriculture, it's tried to create a buffer to that so that we don't feel like when as much when there's a drought or um, when you have tomato worms <laughs> or when you <laughs> um, or when there's political conflict, like our, our food system has been created to buffer us from those things. But still at the end of the day, I mean, th those are totally real circumstances that affect what we can eat, how much we can eat. Um, so I think in maybe in the past, you know, in food communities or in communities, food, um, 
was recognized as something as precious in the sense that it was something out of our control. It, it was a gift. It is a gift. Mm-hmm. And how our human communities have created rituals and ways of honoring that. Um, and just the knowledge that I, um, taking time to just a moment to recognize what's before you. Um, it's amazing because then now we're looking at conscious eating and mindful eating and biologically and scientifically how that's affecting our bodies differently and how that can actually, um, affect the way that we, we digest food. So you have these things pairing up, um, these rituals and customs and traditions and now the really awesome research around like, why is this stuff actually helpful for our bodies? Um, so it's not always the case with traditions and customs and rituals. Um, some, some aren't helpful for, for us. We maybe have determined, but I just loved that, that phrase. Yeah, I agree. I, it's, I actually, I have that quote underlined in my notes for today. Cause, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's, it's just such a beautiful recognition of um, the fact that we need to take a moment. Um, that unconscious eating is um, can be really dangerous for us and for our bodies. Uh, one of the things I I struggled I've struggled with my weight for pretty much my entire life, and one of the things that my doctors would keep telling me is do not eat in front of the TV. Like, just don't do it. I don't care if it's a meal. I don't care if it's a salad. Just don't eat in front of the TV because you're not paying attention to the food. You're not paying attention to, to the flavors. You're not, you're, you're using food as a survival instead of something to, to, um, to nourish yourself with. Hmm. And, Certainly by recognizing and taking a moment and truly tasting the food before you, uh, that, that means a lot. Um, and that can have a huge effect on our bodies and on our minds and, and in general, the, the holistic being of ourselves. Um, so I, I love that quote. Grace is the institutionalization (laughs) of conscious eating. I also wonder too, what the, um, the spaces there for having that grace or that moment or that pause actually be, if we allow it, be kindling for this recognition of belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes when I hear about the concept of conscious eating or mindful eating, um, I get really, I get a little bit anxious. Like I feel like for me, I need to be so mindful and the concentration becomes about me and what I'm thinking Mm -hmm. and what I'm doing, um, how I'm interacting with this food and, and that's okay. But what you just said was really helpful for me because I, I think there's like, what if that moment, that pause is a moment to like recognize something that we talk about so much on this podcast um, but that moment to like really imagine or see before you this radical belonging and relationality that we have. Like the fact that we need this food, <laughs> there's no getting around it. Or the fact that we need 
these amazing like people who have dedicated their lives to bringing that food to our table. And we need like the courtesy clerk at the grocery store and the farmer, the person who developed the seeds. Sometimes we're going to have meals by ourselves and that's okay. And that's reality. Um, but for me, when I eat alone, sometimes it's great. It's alone time. But sometimes it's also this reminder that, like, how precious it is when I have someone to eat with. Mm. Like, sometimes in that their absence, it reminds me, like, what a gift that is and the conversations that can come from that. So, yeah, just thinking of, like, how how that moment, how conscious eating, how grace or and or gratitude how all those things can actually just be a reminder um maybe even an invitation to reach out to someone to acknowledge someone and to give gratitude for yourself for everything that you bring to other people in your life too Mm. um yeah just a reminder into that belonging that's very true as we reflect on this time together christy And I decided to make one of Michael Pollan's recipes that is on his website. And it's just this lovely recipe. Um, Again, kind of in keeping with the recipes that we do on this show, it uses just a couple of ingredients. It really helps those ingredients sing. Um, And it can be a beautifully seasonal recipe, too, uh, if you find yourself in a place and during a time where pears are at their most ripe. Um, So, Christy, do you want to describe a little bit what we've made and what I am enjoying right now? Yes. So this is a roasted pear with ricotta. And Mm. basically what you do is you take butter. Mm-hmm. Because Lots of butter. that's how, yeah, that's how amazing recipes start. If you are vegan, um, you're mm-hmm. more than welcome to use vegan butter. And uh, I also make, think coconut oil would be delicious oh, for this yeah, one. Yeah, 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 for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so use use whatever um, you would like to use for this particular recipe, uh, and just allow that to melt in the bottom of. I used a glass pan. Um, it would probably work also in in an any other type of bakeware but um and then what you do is you cut the pears in half and you core them and then you put them uh cut side down in that butter or oil or vegan butter whatever you're using mm-hmm. you bake it at 425 i think it was uh mm-hmm. for about 400. Mm-hmm. 400 um for about 20 minutes until the pears are nice and tender and you flip them over and pour uh, just like sprinkle some balsamic vinegar over the top and yeah, i think it's like a good quarter cup which yeah. was really surprising at first but works it, beautifully mm-hmm. it's so good and i love balsamic vinegar i love a mm-hmm. lot of things but it was <laughs> incredible and in the midst of all of that you're gonna smell the butter you're gonna smell like yes. this nuttiness coming out and then the nice sharpness of that balsamic vinegar it's full-bodied it's incredible and then we're not done yet, but you're going to put that back in the oven for, I, I did it about 17 minutes, between 15 and 20 minutes. And the pears just like soak up that, that balsamic vinegar. Yeah, they start the balsamic to almost caramelizes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, 
oh, it's so incredible. Um, and <laughs> the, the pears start to exude some of their juice. And then what you do is you take those pears out of the pan. You take a little bit of that juice, that butter, that um, incredible flavor, just drizzle that on top of the pear. And then serve it with a, a nice little scoop of ricotta cheese. And honey. Drizzle the entire thing with honey. Yes. And then I sprinkled it with um, the recipe calls for ground black pepper. Mm -hmm. I also sprinkled just a tiny bit of salt on top. Mm. It was so good. Oh, that sounds delicious. And I did not. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> My intention <laughs> was to do this um, vegan. I, I love exploring vegan recipes. Um, and I so I didn't get any ricotta, which... I just want to say like for this recipe, it's still so, I just, I wanted, I was curious what the balsamic and uh, pear would be like together. And it's just mm -hmm. really stunning. Um, and like we said, I think you could do this with coconut oil. I think you could drizzle maple syrup on top instead of honey oh. if you wanted to, but definitely some black pepper, which is super unexpected. I think some salt is a great idea, Christy. And it's just a really, um, yeah, a really simple and sophisticated dish at the same time and it's it's decadent mm -hmm. like you you really honestly take your time when you're eating it and and I always go back to this quote from Michael Pollan but mm -hmm. don't eat unless you're at a table because when you're right. at a table you're mindful and I think that um that this dish just lends itself so so well to to that philosophy Yes. So we hope that you'll try this dish if you have a chance. Um, of course, customize it to whatever is in your area. I think there's so many ways and directions to take this. Um, and more than that, even, we just hope that you've enjoyed this time with us, um, that you're taking something with you into your day. And we can't wait to talk to you again soon. Thank you so much for joining us at the table. We would love to hear from you. Let us know what you think by leaving a rating on iTunes. Or if you have show ideas, comments, or just want to reach us directly, send us an email at fully.yours.podcast at gmail.com. For today's show notes, our blog, and more, be sure to check us out at fullyyourspodcast.com. Huge thanks to Steve Dry and Catalyst of Harvard Epworth United Methodist Church based in Cambridge, Massachusetts for their generous grant funding of this podcast. Shout out to the talented Joel Adams and Melody Stanford Martin for producing the original song featured in this podcast. Also to Melody for our gorgeous logo design and to our dream team for keeping us grounded and inspired. Until next time, we are fully yours. <laughs>